Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is, well, take your pick, either Ephesus or Artemis or both, and the relationship that they have to one another. Uh, we're going to talk about the background um, to one of the epistles in the New Testament, the book of Ephesus, and then what that means for the way in which um, passages in the New Testament get read. And my guests today are Gary Hogue, who is a visiting professor at a variety of schools and uh, also does work uh, with relationship to finances and stewardship with Global Trust Partners, where he's CEO. And Sandra Glan, who is a fellow colleague here at Dallas, uh, who is professor of what? Ar- media, media Arts and Worship. Media Arts and Worship. I never get it in the right order. I want to start with worship and then go to Media and Arts, that's but not a bad that's priority. okay. <laughs> anyway, um, and and we're discussing um, really the background to a book that Sandra has written called Nobody's Mother. Um, that title is um, intriguing, okay, because – I have a mom, and you have a mom, and Gary has a mom, so you know, so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Artemis of the Ephesians. So um, I'm going to dive in. So, how, so the first question to ask always in a topic like this is because this involves stuff like papyri and things like that, right? Which people handle on an everyday basis, <laughs> and, and so um, how, do, how, did, how did nice people like you get into a gig like this? Gary, I'm going to start with you. How did, how did you become interested in Ephesus and the things surrounding Ephesus? Because Ephesus is a long way away. You know, I appreciate the invitation to be on today, and to answer that question, I wanted to pursue my PhD on wealth in ancient Ephesus in the first letter to Timothy, because I simply wanted to know, what did Paul want Tim to understand about handling riches in God's house? And so that's how I got uh, connected to wanting to research the social and cultural world of Ephesus. Okay, and and so you dove in and got started, and it. I'm 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 assuming it took you to some of these resources that we're going to be talking about. Is that what happened? Well, it, it did. Here's how it went. In my first year, I was studying under um, Phil Towner. And if you can imagine, he released the NICNT commentary in 2006. And six weeks after he released it, he agreed to be my advisor. And so in the first year, he said, I want you to read all the secondary literature on the passages where riches are in view. I came back at the end of that year and said, wow. I said, the debate swirls around rare language. So he says to me, Go to Yale in year two. He says, go to Yale, sit down with Abraham Mallerby and ask him how he unlocked the medical imagery of Paul. And so how I got deep into Ephesus and the Ephesian inscriptions and Artemis was I I spent two years looking at tons of primary material uh, and significant among that was Ephesian inscriptions. Interesting. So um, uh, Phil Towner, who, by the way, I did my doctoral studies at, at Aberdeen, and Phil, I think, overlapped my last year there. So, yeah, that go that name goes way, way back for me. Um, so, Sandra, uh, how did you get involved with Ephesus and Artemis? In my PhD program, which was aesthetic studies, it mm-hmm. had three prongs: history, uh, art, and 
philosophy and my history element, I could choose anywhere in the world for a 200-year period. So I chose 100 BC to 100 AD in Ephesus. Hmm. And that pulled you into all the same that materials. That pulled me into all the same materials. Lots of lots of overlap. Okay, yeah. and and I take it you guys ended up being in contact with each other. Is that right? Or I mean, we were sort of chatting about that earlier. Not but. until our dissertations were done. Really? Actually, huh. yeah. I'll, I'll let Gary tell yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I think what it was was it was one of those cases where our research was happening in parallel tracks, like simultaneously. So we might have been looking at similar material, whereas what I what I was looking at was uh, epigraphic. So I looked at the the inscri- inscriptions of Ephesus. And by the way, I I because the year I was researching, I'm holding up a copy. I. I, I have one of the only sets of the Dientriften von Ephesus. Blomberg offers to or asks to borrow them sometimes. But um, <laughs> I, I, I basically immersed myself in the inscriptions because Mallerby said, Gary, he said, don't search ancient material. Everybody searches it, but they make one fatal error. They think they're searching everything available. And so... I, I I started with epigraphic, then I went to numismatic, and then I went to literary, and and I found lots of stuff that wasn't necessarily in the Greek English lexicons. And so for me, it was like spending two or three years reconstructing the world of Ephesus based on all this really cool evidence. And so I found it absolutely fascinating. Interesting. We'll come back to these categories in a second. And one day he walks into my office and Uh says, we need to meet. Uh We're apparently doing parallel research. She she published an article, right? Yeah, Bibliotheca Sacra ran a two-article two series. So what years are, there are we talking about we here? We were trying to decide. I think 2014, 15-ish, maybe, because we were both... Right around then, yeah. Interesting. Work. So so let's go through the categories. Uh, inscriptions, uh, epigraphy, numistics. Okay, these are I, these are not words people use in their everyday speech. So let's help, let's help them with this. Inscriptions, sure, so. I'll let you... We'll alternate. So let's start with epigraphic. Okay. Epigraphic evidence, which is inscription evidence. Ephesus gives us, you know, second maybe to, second or third to maybe Rome and Athens. Ephesus gives us Massive thousands amount, yeah. of inscriptions. Yeah. And when I'm when I was going through them, I noticed that basically they helped me understand the social and cultural rules, the expectations of people. The um, uh, different patterns of behavior—it's like they they provided um, uh, uh, snapshots of what life was like, and they even included names of different characters. Uh, for example, Towner said to me when when I agreed when he agreed to be my advisor, he said, "I want you to do one thing. I want you to unmask the opponents of Paul." And by the time I'm working through it, I said. Oh, well, I can find the 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 all these characters that Paul says to watch out for in 1 and 2 Timothy. I can show you where they appear in all the different inscriptions. And he says to me, "Wait, how did you do that?" And I said, "Only because I spent, you know, years studying these different lists and these different inscriptions that all of a sudden these characters came to life for me." And the reality is, in the inscription evidence, 
Nobody's reading it, Daryl. Yeah, nobody's. That's right. The they sit there because they're not. They're not digitized, so no one's actually looking at them. Right. right. Fair enough. So, so what's in these inscriptions, or what? What are? What kind of variety do you see in inscriptions when you read them? In other words, what? What are you reading? I'll, okay, I'll rattle off a few things and then have Sandra comment. Okay. One, you see benefaction inscriptions. So all praise be to Celsus for out of his great you know, goodness gave us this library for everybody to enjoy. And okay, so, so a benefactor is someone who, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be translating yeah. so all So you don't have this. income taxes, so right, you get right. a rich person to underwrite the gymnasium or the coliseum or the, you know, whatever, but then they get it's their It's like names. a patron, right? It is a patron yeah. with big lettering. And, and, <laughs> and that's a big deal in ancient society. Right. The role of the benefactor right. is right. a huge deal. So right. I, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, no, I'll probably be doing okay. this all the way through. Go ahead. Sure, sure. We don't even realize it because we were, we we're in that world. I understand. Yeah. Second, uh, second example would be um, uh, honorific inscriptions. In other words, not necessarily for benefactors, but to honor certain people for their roles in society. Another one would be like tombstones, where they would talk, where we would learn about their faith or, was a good or about the God yeah. they trusted in on, on the tombstones. Another would be like a. Um, where they would post laws or rules. Um, but my favorite of all is the largest inscription in Ephesus, number 27, the Gaius Vibius Salutaris inscription, which basically summarizes how the celebration to the annual birth, the annual celebration to the birth of the goddess Artemis should should be handled with its lotteries, distributions, and procession. Like, it's the biggest inscription. And if you just read that one, it can unlock a number of things when you think about Ephesus, First uh, Timothy, and Ephesians. So uh, so let's, let's talk about ranges. So some of these obviously are very short. A tombstone is not going to have a lot to it. But the number 27, which you have now uh, made sacred, um, how, uh, how long is that, is that text? It's in uh, in in Guy Rogers' book, The Sacred Identity of Ephesus. He he translates that in his appendix, which is about say uh, thirty pages long. Okay, so a very significant piece of work is the point. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, the honorifics are interesting. You're in an honor shame culture where mm-hmm. honoring people is a big deal. Um, so when you say we're tapping into the kind of the cultural ethos of a community with these resources and they help open up, they open up uh, elements of the everyday life and the everyday right. language of people, that kind of thing, the <clears throat> expressions and colloquialisms that come with it, as well as describing a little bit of the society. So it really is a glimpse in, and it's different than digging up a site where you just got a you know, where you've just got a room or something or a house that you're looking at, something like that. And it's not it's not a formal text like a letter, at least in, in one sense, although right. it probably can overlap. No so, scribe is editing it okay. or giving a comment. Right. Not, you're not worried that something got removed or added, you know, because it's it's in stone. What it or is is what it is. What it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Another another source is just lists. Like if you go to the fish market and you have all the, you know, experts in fishery. I get your grocery and list. You right? get you you get groceries, <laughs> you get curses. Yeah. Uh, you get sometimes prayers, you'll get a lot, you know, lots of everyday sorts of items. I think 
think one of the the benefits of the list is we're able to look at who's sort of got a name that looks like it came from you know Hittite background, or right. you're getting a sense of immigration, you're getting a sense of class sometimes, mm-hmm. hmm. uh, and so and you'll get uh, lots of forms like of the of the name Artemis. So, you know, parents are naming their sons and daughters after her. We see one of those actually in Titus, where it's Artemis, gift of Artemis is. Mm-hmm somebody Paul is planning to send. Uh, so you get a sense of the how much somebody is worshipped even by how many kids are named okay. after them. Interesting. So, um, okay, so that's the inscriptions and epigraphic evidence. Uh, numistics. What, what's numistics? So, so or I, I would describe it as numismatic evidence. And so, like, one of my favorites that, that is pictured in my published work, Wealth in Ancient Ephesus, is the coins show Artemis holding the Artemisium. And so I think of that childhood song, he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> so it looks like she's got the whole Artemisium in her hands. And Which so her temple. name means strong-limbed. And so it's like she's watching out for um, the wealth of the ancient world because other ancient sources describe the Artemisium as the, as the central bank of Asia or well, the well, where the kings of their stored their wealth. And so this was this place where... Artemis is viewed as watching over it. So on the coins, she's depicted there holding it. So numistics are about the study of the coins and the inscriptions that are on them, the images that are on them, and that kind of, the slogans that are on them. So again, short text on the one hand, but certainly things, phrases that might have very well widely circulated because they were on the currency that people were using. And Daryl, it's kind of like if we pull a coin out of our pocket, and I think Sandra would agree, our coins in America say, in God we trust. So it gives you a sense of the history. And so when you pull out this coin, it's basically their coin set in Artemis we trust. And when you look at the inscriptions, the inscriptions talk about um, celebrating the Eusebia, the piety of the wealthy people toward Artemis. And so they they show us that she was the center of all life, whether it's in the inscriptions or on the coins. So you sometimes hear about papyri. Uh, and wh- where do they where do they fit in the, in this conversation? Uh, is that a separate category or is that kind of like the epigraphic so, evidence so but a slightly different form? So when when Mallerby and at least in my research, I'll let Sandra comment on hers. When when Mallerby and Towner directed me toward, they would they they said go toward literary evidence and look at anything that's primary material. So I would search with TLG, and you can explain what TLG is in a minute. But I, I searched with TLG and looked for anything with an Ephesian provenance or a connection to Ephesus. Got it. And so that's when I discovered uh, a story, and I can tell a little bit about Ephesiaca. But uh, basically, it's for me, it was looking for any literary evidence that had any, any ancient connection to Ephesus. And our best document is... Acts 19. Yes. So you wonder, you know, you read over in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul tells Timothy in verse 3, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So the first question is, what are some of the doctrines floating around? And we have 
a primary piece of evidence that says, well, magic mm-hmm. and Artemis, and actually the two are connected. Okay, so so, so this, this sets the backdrop. So this is where all this information is coming from and what you, uh, what you all were working with as you help us uh, understand the environment of Ephesus. Obviously, we've said the word Artemis multiple times. Mm-hmm. So she obviously is, well, let me say it this way, use a little flair here. She cast a shadow on Ephesus. Is that fair? That is understatement. I mean, she was, if, it, again, the, when I spent time in the world of the inscriptions and the literate, she was a part of everyone's everyday life. Okay. It's not just religion. It's, there's That's not right. that kind because religion and culture and economics and everything was connected. Yeah. So, and in fact, Acts 19 makes this clear that when when there began to be a cultural reaction to the presence of the Christians, yeah. Yeah. and this was in fact a- impacting the the commerce of the silversmiths, um, the silversmiths u- union reacted uh, and uh, and responded because they were being shut down from their. Uh, from their uh, means of living. Right. And interestingly, we notice there that it's male silver workers, mm-hmm. which solves another question. Is this just a girl cult? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. This this was in the same way that you don't just have women who are venerating Mary. Right. You don't have just women that are following Artemis. It's completely everybody. Okay. So uh, let, let's talk about the casting of this shadow. First of all, let's talk – well – Ephesus, the temple at Artemis was one of the wonders of ancients, uh, wonders of the ancient world. We'd probably argue the star wonder, right? Yeah, right. Well, yeah. in in Pausanias's Guide to Greece, he had the Heptathemata, the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was actually number two of the seven. So, if you're listening, it was the ancient trip advisor. So, the ancient trip advisor said you have to see these seven locations, and the Artemisium was a cross between the Smithsonian and the Creation Museum because they. They learned the the they would go there to learn the origin of all life and to see the artifacts of then history the history of life. Okay, and and the temple this is no small building that we're talking about, right? No, this huge. is this is a huge, huge place. You know, uh, probably when I say temple, the, probably the first building that might come to the mind of an average person would be the Parthenon. Right, it's in, about four in times Athens. that size. Yeah, four times the Parthenon. <laughs> I mean, my understanding is, think about it this way. Think about an American football field from one end to the other, but probably double or triple size in width, okay? So length going one way and width going the other, and it, it's massive, right? And you look like you're ready to give us some statistics, so I'm, I won't get in your no, way. No, I, I'm just – I'm agreeing that it – I was trying to – for modern listeners, I was trying to picture – because it's bigger than – and than these football stadiums or even Olympic stadiums because of the width of it. Yeah, exactly. That's the surprise. The length is, is almost – end of an end zone to the other end of the end zone, but the width is um, two or three times, two, I think two and a half to three times the width of a American vote. So think about all that being a building, okay? Um, not the enclosure around a football field that we get in a stadium, okay? But the actual building itself with everything inside. So this is a massive spot. I um, I sometimes preach on Ephesus and I'll, I'll do a rendering of the temple and I'll show it and you know and talk about its size and people will be impressed and then I'll show a picture of what remains today. Yeah. 
which is cobbled together from a bunch of stones that fell. It's one pillar. Exactly. All one pillar all by itself. With, with a stork on top, exactly. I might yeah. add. That's right. Someone ironic. is living on the top. <laughs> Artemis, Artemis, the sustenance of Artemis still lives in a yeah. very reduced form. Very reduced. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And the temple isn't just for worship. It's uh, people are going to take, let's say you're retiring from farm work, you're going to take your best implements and offer them to her. So it can sort of become a museum. Mm-hmm. It's the only place that's safe to leave money because it's guarded. They mm-hmm. don't have banks. And so you're going to get rich people coming from around the empire and depositing their funds there. So it's sort of the bank, the temple, the everything. It's a kind of a form of museum. a public square, a functioning yeah. public square, yeah. a com- functioning public mall almost. Yeah. For, yeah, the big uh, thing for me about, about the, the precincts of the Artemisium was that in the story I discovered, which it's interesting, when I discovered it in um, in 2008, it wasn't released in the, you know, the famous Loeb Classical Library yet. Huh. And so um, I, I go to my advisor, Towner, and I show him in the opening scene that women are wearing this prohibited hairstyle in 1 Timothy 2 that, that up until that point, scholars had said, well, we're not really sure what it refers to. And I said, look, all the girls are wearing it to show their piety to goddess Artemis in the opening scene. But then as the story unfolds, um, this this story called Ephesiaca, I discovered that every day the young gals would go and compete and not learn in silence with submission, but compete with competition and recitation to recite the Artemis myth so that they could have one of four priestessly roles so they could basically have these roles to serve the tens of thousands of tourists that came through and visited the Artemisium. And so it was this place where you would have heard a lot of incantation going on in at least parts of the precincts every single day. Okay, so we've kind of given a feel for the scope of this, that this drove, uh, this not only drove the, the worship in the area, but it, it, uh, it actually uh, was a commercial center, and it was a lot of attraction. Everyone, everyone interacted with the reality of what this meant for Ephesus, and Ephesus is no minor, minor city in the ancient world. I mean, it's, it's a crossroads city in many ways. It's probably worth mentioning, too, that it's considered the natal city for Artemis, that mm-hmm. she is born there, that you know she has a twin. They kind of assign him Delos, even though they're twins. But you know she, that's her natal city. And I think in the same way that people in Bethlehem connect Jesus with that city and annual festivals, and that, mm-hmm. that's where they get their identity and their income. Yeah. I'm not saying Artemis is anywhere close to Jesus. I'm just saying in terms of thinking about the connection of the city to a natal event, that's how they would have thought of, of Ephesus. So, so sure. as, and, and what, what I would add to that is that um, when we read about things like endless genealogies and people connecting their genealogies linked to the, the nascent heresy or the local heresy, um, the people would process in this annual celebration of the birth of the goddess based on who could trace their Ionian roots back to the origin of the city. Oh, wow. And so if you could trace your roots back to the origin of the city, you got to be in the front of the line. So it's like Daughters of the American Revolution, right? It's it's it. it. If you could trace your roots, you got to carry the statues and you'd be in the front of the line. Oh, there you go. In an Uh, honor culture. Yeah, Yeah. in an honor culture, exactly. So I I think we've sort of painted the feel for how important and how uh, almost omnipresent Artemis was in the city Mm -hmm. of 
Ephesus. So now let's let's talk about the, the what I think is the fun part of this, which is um, what did people say about Artemis in the past, and what did this research surface about Artemis as a result? So let's talk first about the way Artemis has been portrayed and traditionally been portrayed. Uh, that uh, and we'll just start there. So so. I mean, she obviously is prominent, but who or what was Artemis in, in the view of uh, of a more traditional reading of who Artemis is? So one of the falsehoods I was trying to correct was that there you'll read a lot of commentaries, a lot of folks saying she's a fertility goddess, and that comes from misunderstanding the statuary uh, surrounding the Ephesian version. Which, if you go to Ephesus which, today, you can it, even see. That's so, right. Okay. Yeah. And and the one that dates back to the approximate time of the earliest Christians, you'll yeah. see a number of them that would have been in the temple, and so the the. Wrong thinking goes, those look like breasts, breasts are connected with nurturing and fertility, therefore Artemis must be a fertility goddess. Our, our best understanding now is those are closer to maybe Hittite magic sacks, that they're uh, something you put on rather than a body part. And Artemis, from antiquity and down to the time of the New Testament, has consistently been a virgin goddess. She doesn't hate men. She is worshipped by men, but she is not interested in sex, love, marriage. Uh, she did love once, but he died, and so that's the end of that. But she's been very, very connected, especially in Ephesus, with midwifery. Mm -hmm. uh, the thought is that she provided a painless birth for her mother. Her arrows are thought to be euthanizing, but also pain-free birth. And birth and for a, in, in an ancient world. The number is a one big cause deal. of death for women. Right, right. Yeah. So fear, all that. Yeah. So I, I think the only thing I would add to that, I would say amen to what Sandra just said. And I would add that in antiquity, because in this whole Greek mindset, she helped her mother, Leto, deliver her twin brother, Apollo. She became known as the goddess of childbearing. And so one of the social and cultural pressures on all the gals was you remain loyal to the goddess. Otherwise, you're going to die during childbearing. So if somebody died during childbearing, they'd be like, wow, Artemis. you know, yeah. she must not have been loyal to the goddess. So don't you think that would make sure you would you would dot your I's and cross your T's and do whatever the social and religious pressure said you did. So just like in the modern world, we have these religions that pressure people to say, if you don't do all these things, that's why what I find is so beautiful is that the freedom that we see is, you know, you're going to be saved through childbearing if you continue in faith and modesty. That's part of what I connect in my doctoral research is that the pressure on these girls was, oh, I've got to remain loyal to the goddess. And the reality is you can follow Jesus and not worry about what's going to happen during childbearing. Okay, so you've brought in one of the applications that comes out of this. So I was going to save that for later, but we can do it now. And and so the point is is that it's an – I'll see if I'm – I may mean, coin a phrase here. It's an anti – Artemarian text? Yeah, it's a pro-Jesus text. It's a pro-Jesus text. Well, I think Paul is arguing that Jesus is better. That's right. Anything that you look to for her, from her, she's fake. Uh -huh. <laughs> she's, she's God made without made with hands. That's yeah. not a real God. Jesus is better. And, you know, you if you look at Acts 19, what's happening in the face of magic work is anything Paul touches, you take it to somebody and they're healed. And I think, I think, Probably something similar is happening in, happening in his instruction to Timothy of their number one fear for a convert is, okay, this is where the rubber meets the road. Right. And he's saying Jesus is better. Jesus is stronger. 
Jesus will protect you. Jesus will protect you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th- where I would, you called it, use anti, your word again. Anti-Artemarian. Anti- <laughs> here, here, yeah. By the way, um, Towner told me you can invent only one new word in your PhD. So you that That's a good rule. Okay, I'm done after 20 minutes. So bachism. I just want you to know. There's your bachism okay. for the But here, here's what here's what I would say to that. I would say until I really dug into the ancient world and saw that the that in the ancient mindset that the Roman Diana and the Egyptian Isis and the Ephesian Artemis were this mystical same lady i didn't realize that in the in the legends w- the reason it's an anti i can't even say it because i have an artemarian okay <laughs> the reason it's 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 that kind of a text is because the in the in the legend of this goddess she promoted that sin came into the world through man and she promoted that the origin of all life was women and 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 so um, that's why in 1 Timothy, it flips it and says, these things aren't what's true. And so it's it's literally deconstructing or demythologizing that which was part of everyday thinking in Ephesus, saying you can't promote this any longer because that that's what everybody thought was commonplace. So he's hmm. correcting a wrong creation story. With exactly, creation exactly. Story. A wrong creation story and a wrong origin, origin of story. sin story. Interesting. So um, this episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So let me let me go to another thing that you alluded to earlier, which is that this this statue with the which the bulbous elect- appendages. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to quite how to, this clothing. Good recovery, Sandra. This clothing, this clothing that uh, suggests magic. And, and am I reading that right? It, it, magic sacks. Magic sacks. Hittite so, magic sacks. So so what's going on there? Well. You know, there are a lot of questions about it. I, I would prefer to say what we've eliminated. Okay. So we've eliminated breasts. Uh-huh. We've eliminated bull testicles, which okay. is a later theory that tries to sort of masculinize her sexual power. But okay. it's it's kind of pretty much undermines that. Um, some have thought that it was, you know, the opposite of like of a honeycomb because a bee is the symbol of the city of Ephesus. And so people have tried to see, and you could sort of see bee imagery. Her mm-hmm. legs sort of look like a bee. Um, but I think we are, uh, we have been slow to sort of look to the Hittites and more look to European sources mm-hmm. and uh, the Anatolian influences that are that are coming in from the Hittite influences, it seems that there's those are probably magic pouches, 
and re- and relating connecting Artemis to magic. But I'm not going to die on that hill. Uh-huh. I'm I'm more I'm more concerned to say what she's not. She's not a fertility goddess. But but right? isn't isn't wouldn't the point be? Let me ask it this way. Wouldn't the point be that Artemis is associated with certain kinds of powers? Yes, uh, absolutely. Protection, etc. And there, world, yeah. and there, and and that's what's being celebrated, right? Yes. Um, yes. And again, the, the the passage that we're talking about about childbirth is a counter to that. Correct. And uh, and then and then, of course, it also explains one of the things that I like to point out about Ephesus, which is that because there were so many people who were having a change of heart and they were burning their magic books and setting right. them aside, right. and why this is useless, we don't need to be a part of this anymore. And I like to make the observation that this change did not happen because the Ephesian City Council met and passed a law <laughs> saying we're ruling yes. out magic books. Yes. Okay, It happened right. because of a change that, that Christ brought into the community and into right. the culture that caused them walking away from a certain activity that they said, we aren't engaged in this anymore. It didn't come from smashing, you know, statues of Artemis or right. Paul calling people to I mean it was false. He didn't believe in it. Right. But he's also super savvy about how he talks. Well, about just it. to show how savvy we're talking about, now I'm gonna lump, I'm gonna jump to Mars Hill and to, to Athens, because mm-hmm. I actually think there's a huge lesson in this Agreed. part of the passage where Paul opens up on Mars Hill and he says, I see that you're very religious in every respect. And this is coming from a person who in the end of Romans, um, has some less than flattering things to say about idolatry. He That's did. an understatement yeah, that again. <laughs> okay, all right. And and someone who's who the passage in in Acts itself begins by saying he walked around and saw his saw the idols and his spirit was provoked okay so his blood pressure changed that's yeah, my that's, that's my paraphrase yeah. of that so we know he's upset at what he's seeing yet he walks into the audience who who are connected to this to this style of life and he goes you know what i see that you're pretty spiritual let's talk spiritual things and you he quote one of your poets yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, quotes I, poets I down even, the road and because of my time in the in the semantic world of the inscriptions, I would say the reason he said that is one of the most common words you see celebrated in the honorific inscriptions is Eusebia, which is piety. Yes. So he's going to walk in and say, wow, I see there's a lot of Eusebia. There's a lot of piety. There's a lot of religiligiousness here. And so he then uses that, at least Eusebia. That's the door as, he goes through. It is the door he goes yeah, through. That's the door. I, right. He, yeah. right. He uses yeah. that as the doorway. Yes. Yeah. And, exactly. and so so the point I say, I, I see that you're very spiritual, interested in spiritual things. Man, that's a topic I can talk about. It is. So let's do it. And then, and then the next step, which is really interesting, is he takes where they are and says, do you really think this works, in effect? Because he says, do you think you can contain the the creator God, the God who's created everything all around us in a Just building. Just ask him. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you can represent right. him right. in something made with your own hands, which classic Jewish argument about idolatry and the idols. But still, the point is, he's coming at them from where they are coming from, and that's his launch into the conversation. He's not just dumping his his uh, evangelistic agenda on Correct. them. He's actually connecting to them before he goes there. I see something similar with what he does does in the introduction to First Timothy, where one of the myths about Artemis in Homer is that she asked to have many names, mm-hmm. and she is called God and Lord, and you know the female version of King, mm-hmm. and 
Uh, and usually Paul just starts out with grace and peace to you, right? But he's like, he greets Timothy talking about the Savior, the Lord, the God, you know, yeah. and just pulls Goes out all his the, list. And manifest is another one, and mm -hmm. you see that in First Timothy. And so it's like he reinscribes her so-called majesty and redirects it to where it belongs, but never, never insulting her. No, in the always process. in the way it's Just attached to Christ. Just exalting Christ. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, and you see, you see a similar thing with the title Lord in in the New Testament as a response to Caesar and Caesar's claims of lordship. So, um, so this is a <laughs> this is a variety of environments, uh, the same kind of move uh, that you're that you're seeing. So, um, what what else what else should we be aware of in in Ephesians as a result of some of the background? I think we here? should hear from Gary about his work in the novel that was sent in the first century because it it actually really helps us, I think, understand some of that. Sure. So. Um, let me go back to when I was when I was digging into literary evidence. So I go into this story, and it's called Ephesiaca, or or uh, published as Anthea and Hebrokamis. Just think it's a story about a wealthy. It's not at the top of my New York Times bestseller <laughs> well, list. I think title. Shakespeare might have borrowed <laughs> from it, though. So. so here, let me in plain terms. I'll call it. It's about a fifty-page story. Okay. It it has kind of five sections to it. And it's it's about a wealthy Ephesian couple. And, and in this story, it starts out, it's basically we would call it Christmas Eve. It's 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 like the eve of the celebration of the birth of the goddess. Everybody's getting ready for the festivities. So it's just take that salutaris inscription. That's that's I V E 27, which is this really long inscription, which describes the annual celebration. So if that inscription describes the celebration in, in like a uh, uh, like a description. This is like watching a movie of it happening. Oh, so wow. they're all getting ready for the festivities. And when I when I discover in like the opening scene, the women are all wearing this this some this apparel that they're they're prohibited to wear in one Timothy two. And this and this hairstyle, and they're doing it to show their piety, the goddess Artemis. I'm saying to myself, "Wow, this is." And and so then, as you go through the story, the story is is the story of of this couple and their let's just say their love for one another and their loyalty to the goddess. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in the story, but what I'll, what I'll tell you is it simply adds to our knowledge. Now, when it was discovered, this is the interesting part of Ephesiaca. When it was discovered in 1726, it was dusted off. There's only one copy of it. It was found in a monastery, so now it's in the library in Florence, Italy. And so when, when it was discovered, it was in 1726, it was thought to be Ephesus in the third century. That's why it was put on a shelf, and uh, New Testament scholars never really looked at it because only Greek nerds, Greek classical <laughs> scholars looked at it. Well, in 1996, uh, one of these beloved, whatever, Greek nerd scholars dusted it off and said, hey, James O'Sullivan, he said, hey, wait a minute, based on this, 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 all this archaeological evidence that appeared between 1726 and 1996, he says, this isn't Ephesus in the third century, this is Ephesus in 50 AD. So now all of a sudden, 
we if it's we take Luke's yeah, actually right the snack in the period. Yeah, that's right. So Luke's actually the apostles places Paul in Ephesus 52 to 54. Now we have a contemporary document to the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. So wait a minute. So now what we have is some of the rare terms and themes that appear in one Timothy, which have caused you know, People liberal scholars Paul on authorship, for example, Timothy right. wrote it right. to, wait a minute, it's this right brings there. to life some of these terms because they're used in this story. Interesting. So, yeah. You keep holding up that lobe library. Which volume are you holding up? <laughs> I mean, I, first of all, first of all, I want to declare that that definitely is a used volume. So if I bought it in a resale, <laughs> I would probably talk about its character and, and, and that kind of thing. With tabs, no less. I hope it comes yes. with the tabs when you resell it. But anyway. Well, I will. I'll die with this one. This was volume 69. Volume 69 of? The Loeb. The, the Loeb Classical Library. But so, the ti- so in the front, what's the title on the front? title says Longus, Daphnis, and Chloe, and Xenophon of Ephesus, Anthean Hebrokamis. Okay, got it. Xenophon. There, Oh, there you Xenophon go. Xenophon of Ephesus. There we guy. go. That's what I was looking Anthea for. and Brokamis. Okay. So it's it, a sweet little love story, but it has all kinds of stuff that tells us the actual practices okay, of Artemis I don't know if worshipers. I have that volume. I may have to go get it. But <laughs> you anyway. might have to. It's a good read. So listen. Listen to this. One more thing. So I'm defending – so in the British system, you, you have to do uh, – it's either two years or, or – excuse me, either four years or eight years part-time. I did the eight-year part-time program. So I'm at the uh, three-year mark, and I'm about to schedule my, my upgrade, right? Uh-huh. And, and this is released. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what did Jeffrey Henderson say the dating of Ephesiaca was? So I held my breath. And I open it up and they say, basically, they say, wow, maybe Ephesiaca or this story, Anthea and Hebrokamese, it has different titles. Maybe this story should be earlier after all. And so, you know, they don't necessarily peg a date, but they allow for the earlier date. So so, so the, to, so the whispering about the, the date was going on when this volume was being produced. Is that what you're right. saying? Literally, yes. Yeah. So, so it wasn't until this was released in 2009. Uh-huh. And so... Right, it was released literally right as I'm like defending my upgrade, and they're like, "Wow, you don't have to argue for an earlier date because they they've already they've already said it. It seems like it's it's the logical earlier date." Because aren't you grateful when something like that appears while you're doing your work? (laughs) Here, I thought I was like. I thought I was bringing some new evidence to the table, and then, boom, it's published, and I'm like, oh, yeah. my goodness, no, please Call don't. Collaborating yeah, exactly. So we know. just had a dissertation nerd moment. I just wanted to – I just, I just We did, want, but it's, it's helpful for Bible scholars. It's yeah. helpful for pastors just knowing that you have this fun story that is set in our city at a, the approximate time of the earliest Christians. It gives us all kinds of hints. Sure, and this and this is actually one of the reasons why we did this particular table podcast is that is that think of all the work that goes on in the background underneath all these passages in the Bible where you're asking, you know, what was going on in the period when and you just fill in that sentence and you can think about, you know, you can think about all the various locations that you're dealing with in the New Testament, whether it be Rome or Corinth or or Athens, or Ephesus, whatever, uh, um, uh, and and you know, people have spent years of their life uh, working through this kind of material 
to present it so that so that you can get two or three sentences in a commentary <laughs> that are accurate, okay, right. all yeah. right, and that set the background. And that's what we're talking about. There's a layer of scholarship that usually goes unhidden right. and mostly unacknowledged other than in a footnote. Um, that is involved here, and yet these little pieces add up and they help us to understand what's going on in the Bible. They help us see Paul's approach to missiology. Mm -hmm. They help us understand that Paul wasn't picking on women and their hair. He was actually making a statement about what, how we exercise our piety. Just all kinds of ramifications for what this uh, Gary's work in wealth and just seeing how much wealth is in the city of Ephesus and how that explains to some degree why so much of First Timothy focuses on wealth? Yeah, if you go through, if you go through to Ephesus today and you just tour some of the um, some of the sites. When I went, it's been in two thousand and three, I think, or two thousand and four. Um, be when the moment they found out I was a professor, they said, "Oh, let's let's take you to a part of Ephesus that most people don't get to tour through." And they walked me through some of the houses of the wealthy part of the city and that kind of thing with the walls that were still had uh, remnants of the painting. They're open to the public like, now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's now public, yeah. but at the time it wasn't. Wow. And I'm in, and you know, and they're, and they're basically telling me you're going through some of the richest part of what Ephesus was right. at the time and that kind of thing, and it's. You know, and you you get a sense of how vast the city. Of course, you walk into that big theater, which wasn't all there during Paul's time, but a lot of it was, and you go, "This is a major metropolitan area. This is no minor Correct. minor location in terms right. of what's going on, uh, because it could seat thousands and thousands of people." I, I love telling my students when I'm when I'm there or talk about it on a picture. I say, "This is holding as many people as the basketball arena in Dallas." You know, right. so um, picture that with people yelling greatest exactly Artemis right. of the Ephesians exactly. for two hours. It exactly be a right. Yeah, that's the feel uh, of it. Yeah. I'd love to hear more from Sandra on this, but one of the biggest things I discovered in spending basically a decade living in the world, and if you're listening, this is what I mean by spending a decade in this ancient world. For about a decade, I can't say that I knew anything about what was going on in modern day football or baseball. Or <laughs> I, I could tell you, yeah. I could tell you more about the names on the Via Sacra yeah. and the and this that's called the Sacred Way in Ephesus than I knew on the professional sports teams that were that everybody was talking about over coffee. So you knew over. what Yelp Ephesus looked like in the first century. <laughs> exactly. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, but this is what I would, would love to hear more from Sandra, and that is what I found was going into it, and this is, the British system really forced me to set aside any agenda going into my research. And when I did my research, I, I went in knowing that many women didn't really like Paul. And what I realized was, was for me, the author of One Timothy, he actually was really kind to women. Yeah. And and the ancient world is what was mean and harsh to right. women. Completely. And so I found, I found as well. Completely. Would you agree? Absolutely. I, he is much more of an advocate even for women that I knew yes. bef before I had the eyes to read the text, knowing his context, for sure. For sure. Uh, and, and I never dreamed that in, uh, like, I never dreamed that that in, in wanting to know what did Paul want Tim to understand about handling riches and spread in the house of God? What did he want him to propagate or to, to communicate? I never realized that 
riches would be in view and the adornment of women and that I would discover this this ancient story and that I would use it as a Rosetta Stone next to the Greek text of 1 Timothy and I would discover, oh my goodness, Paul was like their best friend. He was saying, mm-hmm. look, you just got to let go of the heresy and you, go, you got to let go of the goddess being a part of every aspect of your life and you're going to be saved through childbearing and you don't have anything to worry about and quit promoting your myth. And it's like, wait a minute, he's so kind. And so, you know what then I discovered? I mean, people who really appreciated the social and cultural richness of the Word of God loved my research. People who had an agenda about the role of women, they wouldn't even look at it. They wouldn't even talk about it. Whereas whereas women would say like, wow, you just set me free. I didn't like Paul before. Now I like him. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... It's an important set of themes, and of course, the First Corinthians—sorry, uh, First Timothy six passage on wealth and riches is probably one of the. I'm now have a little pun. One of the richest texts on riches yeah. in the New Testament, yeah. it, it, uh, in terms of how to. I can't tell you how many times I've taken people to that text and talked about its contents. Uh, Wouldn't and, you and, say, Gary, that we came out focusing more on one Timothy than we did on the Book of Ephesians? That just yeah, more I, parallels. I think for me, I simply discuss in looking at the world of Ephesus, just looking at Ephesus, it just dawned on me. Well, no wonder when I read Ephesians, every other verse it seems like talks about the riches of the glory of his and the riches and riches, because it was like the Wall Street of the ancient world. And so I just tell people. Simply, if you read Ephesus, you you need to think it's the Wall Street of the ancient world where where wealth and religion and everything was wrapped up in the goddess, and and they wanted you to wrap it all up in Jesus instead. Right. And and of course, one of the things now I am going to cross over to Ephesians is the emphasis that's put on exaltation of Jesus in the book right. of Ephesus, which is like the Gospel of. Luke and and its sequel Acts. I had to get mm, Luke you in did. there somehow. That was subtle, <laughs> okay. subtle and capital B. <laughs> All right. So, uh, but if you th- we'll, we'll salute you. I uh, appreciate <laughs> right. it. So, but that whole exaltation theme and above all rule and right. principalities and right. powers. That's that's what's resonating uh, in, in what right. in that first half of the book. I read one thing that talked about a guy bringing his uh, inheritance to Artemis, and then when I reread Ephesians 1 about our inheritance, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, he takes his inheritance to his God, our God gives us an inheritance, and oh, by the way, that inheritance is God himself. Yeah. It's just the contrast of that is really moving. Yeah. So, I mean, I, well, again, I, the, the reason we did this was to show that, um, one, give a little glimpse about what it takes to do this kind of research and uh, and how one goes about it and what it re- requires. Uh, hold up that stack of books again that you had. I want. I, I just want to... Well, so- so this is for your audio only. It's three <laughs> feet high. <laughs> I know you guys can't see it, but this is this is the ten vol or whatever the all the volumes of Dean Schriften von Epps. And it's so. one and page it's, at a time, right? And it's not yeah, and, expensive. You know, honestly, <laughs> um, what was what was what was providential for me was the language I studied in in high school was German, and so all the notes in Dean. Oh Schriften, wow! Of course, are German. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And then yeah. and so I was like. And, and but let's let's go back to this because if someone's listening and they want to do research, 
Um, and this is what Sandra asked me before we started today. Like, what are you looking at? I there is so much more to be drawn out of these so inscriptions. No, a lot of us hasn't been read yet. Right. Right, right. Nobody, nobody's reading it. Yeah. And I go back to Abe Mallerby's advice: don't search ancient material. Everybody searches it with an agenda. Yeah. Just go read it. Yeah. And if you read it, you'll 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 kind of enter into that world without an agenda, and you'll discover new things that you never dreamed. Well, you get context that way, whereas Correct. when you That's search, right. you tend to yes. go, oh, it's this line, Dictionary and it's term. this yep. line, and it's right. this line. And that, and you also miss, or can miss, the related terms that are on the same topic that will open up even more. I mean, you know, you can, you can give your life to just wrestling with one of these themes if they're full enough, uh, and, and, right. and never roam from that space. Um, I mean, it's that vast. And so when you hear when you hear people who who do deep scholarship say, you know, I, the more I do deep scholarship, the more I'm aware of what I don't know. Um, yes, the, you understand where <laughs> yeah, that's coming that's from. So, true. so now, uh, I want to want to share what Abraham Mallerby did with me, though. Mm-hmm. If if anyone's listening and they work with the next generation of scholar, this was really profound for me. So Towner called Mallerby. And so Mallerby said he would agree to meet with me. And this is what he said. Bring your Greek New Testament, a tape recorder, and a pen and pencil, or a pen and paper. And and so I get to his house, and he agrees to spend like three hours with me. And we read through 1 Timothy in Greek. This is all we did. We read through the whole text in Greek. And every three verses, he would stop and wax eloquent on how words appeared in the moral and ethical philosophers. And so if you look at my transcription of the meeting, it was like 17 pages. It was like all Abe and then me and then all Abe and then me. And, but, but, but this is what was key. I said, you know, about halfway through this time, I said, how do you know all this? And he said, well, for about 17 years, every day when I went into work, I would read a little bit from the ancient world. Just every day I would be reading, reading material. And so he entered that world. So when a word appeared in 1 Thessalonians or a word appeared here, he, he was like, oh, I see it here, 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 in all these places, many of which maybe weren't cataloged or whatever. And so I would just encourage people, when you when you enter into then that primary material and you read it, and then you go read, just, at, just in one sitting, you read like 1 Timothy in Greek, all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, I saw that word, that word, that word, that, mm-hmm. like, and then all these things that you didn't have an agenda to find jump out to you. Yeah. Now, you're reminding me of the conversations I used to have with Martin Hengel when I was in Germany. And he oh, would yeah. have this vast room uh, of a library, and we would talk about something, we'd hit something. What he would do is, wait a second, he would get up and he'd pull a book off, and sometimes he had it marked, and sometimes he didn't, and he'd say, that reminds me of this, you know? And, and it, the, the knowledge that he had of what he had around him was uh, endless. Uh, immense and and always um, almost always really really insightful about about what the connection was and and how it helped uh, illuminate a text that kind of thing so yeah we're talking about a level of, of work and scholarship here that uh, that just is trying to wrestle with understanding the culture and the history 
in which the Bible is immersed. And, um, you know, oftentimes people think of the Bible as kind of its own game, but it is, uh, it is actually interacting with a mm-hmm. world around it that, uh, that you understand much better. Once you understand the conversation, right. you understand the text much better. Correct. Agree. Yeah. Well, I want to thank y'all for taking the time to be with us and to walk us through um, walk us through you know this kind of background to a particular text. I think it's been instructive to people, and we really do appreciate uh, uh, your taking the time. And you know what, uh, Sandra, I didn't actually ask you to explain. What you mean by nobody's mother? So let me close Artemis with doing is that. not a fertility goddess. Okay. She's a confirmed virgin. Okay. And if people get nothing else from my book, I hope that they'll quit saying she's a fertility goddess. Because okay. there are a whole lot of historians out there that roll their eyes at us when we say that. Okay. So she, she's nobody's mother. Okay. Literally. Well, uh, we all of us have mothers, but apparently Artemis ain't. Artemis one of them. has a mother. Okay. She isn't a mother. Okay. All right. She is not that she's nobody's child. Okay. She's somebody's child. Okay. She's Zeus's child. Okay. But she's nobody's mother. All right. She's nobody's progeny, and oh, she has no progeny, but she's she has, everybody's progeny. No, no. She's time. the daughter of Zeus and Leto. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little dalliance there on the side of uh-huh. Zeus. We could do a book on Zeus called Everybody's Father, but that's a whole different, <laughs> whole different book. Yeah. Right? Fair enough. Yeah, well, there probably isn't enough. There probably has been a lot written <laughs> about that. Yeah. <laughs> Only people with a classical education would even understand would even what you were saying. Would even get what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, you, we need to have a little 30-second bit of humor bit and say, now, study up in order so you can get this joke. So you joke. can get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you all. Thank, appreciate us. it, Gary. Really do appreciate you taking the time oh, with good us. good to talk with you, Gary. And Thanks, Sandra, Darryl. as always, uh, real joy. And we thank you for being a part of the table. We hope you join us again soon. If you want to see one of the other episodes of the table, we have almost 600 of them now uh, done over the last decade. It's voice.dts.edu slash table podcast. And we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.